0: Hello, good evening, and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's programme, the little-known story of a Royal Navy ship captured by the IRA just after the War of Independence, Ireland's lighthouses, and disturbing accounts of the culture and morale in the Irish Coast Guard Services. Sally Cotton Job is the title of a new book about a little known incident in 1922 when the IRA in Cork attempted to hijack a Royal Navy ship at sea off the south coast. It's an extraordinary tale, really well told, and something most of us knew nothing about. The author is Tom Mahan, and he told me how he came to tell the story.
1: Well, Fergal, it was an absolutely fascinating incident. And yet there was very little about it. I just came across very brief mentions of it in books, but no no description of it. And I also have a personal relationship to the story. When I was a kid, we used to go down to Cork and stay with my grandparents, uh, Tom and Ellen Crofts. And I remember uh, my grandfather, uh, who was a very warm, jovial uh, fellow, had a, a spyglass, an old bronze spyglass from a ship. And I, his, my mother told me that he had actually been part of a group that had uh, captured a Royal Navy ship. So I was fascinated to think there was a real pirate in the family. And it was from there that I begin, began to learn about the capture of the Upnor and realized it had never been told before. So I went to the archives and it was a very complex story and it had to be researched from both a British and Irish angles, So it brought me to archives throughout Britain and Ireland.
0: Now, the period we're talking about is just after the signing of the treaty and before the Civil War broke out full scale.
1: Yes, this is the build-up to the Civil War. Uh, The IRA is split into anti-treaty and pro-treaty factions. And Michael Collins has just assumed uh, command in uh, Dublin as chairman of the Provisional Government. And so there was a desire among the anti-treaty IRA, which was led in Cork City by Sean O'Hegarty to arm themselves uh, for what was expected to be a fight in order to uh, defend their concept of a republic.
0: And it's something you go into in quite a bit of detail, the shortage of arms and ammunition that the IRA had even during the War of Independence in the Cork area.
1: It's absolutely fascinating that they were able to carry out such a a, um, campaign with so little weaponry. As you know, their weaponry was largely stolen from the uh, British uh, police and army. Um, But aside from not just having sufficient weapons, there was was an absolute shortage of ammunition. So that most of the time fighters went into um, combat with at the most fifty rounds of ammunition, so they were only capable in an ambush of maintaining fire for about three minutes. so this is quite remarkable,
0: so they decided there was this ship leaving Cove there with British army ammunition and guns. they were going to get it.
1: Yes, um, the British were hastily evacuating. Um, from Ireland in the spring of 1922 and there was an expectation that the uh, country could descend into civil war. So the British were very anxious to get their soldiers, disband the army and to uh, withdraw their weaponry. So therefore the Upnor, which was a ship especially designed for transporting arms, was brought over to the naval base at Cove, which was often known as Queenstown then, loaded with 100 and 20 tons of munitions which were supposed to be brought to the Royal Navy base at Plymouth. And this was the target.
0: The IRA in Cork, the anti treaty side, decided they were going to get their hands on this. Who was involved
1: and how did they go about it? Well, Sean O'Hegarty was the the leader in Cork. And um, he... he convened a small group, ten um, of his senior officers, and he decided the operation would be led by a most extraordinary character, Dan Sando O'Donovan. And it, even though they had no nautical experience, that had never been to sea before, they decided that they could cap, they would capture the upnor The problem was that the ship was sailing from the very heavily guarded base at uh, Queenstown to Plymouth. So they couldn't capture the ship within um, the Cork Harbour and they had to, they were forced to come up with a plan to capture it at sea.
0: Their plan started in Cove?
1: They got word of um, the the loading of the Upnor and then their informant told, um, they were on standby, their informant told them the Upnor was ready to sail on Wednesday the 29th of March. They, um, a small group, six or seven, drove down to Cove where they went to the Deepwater Quay. But they knew they needed somebody of uh, expertise in sailing. So at the same time, they captured Captain Jeremiah Collins, who was a well-known uh, merchant captain from Cork. And um, they kidnapped him outside his bank in the so- South Mile in Cork drove him also down to the deep water Quay.
0: You have a detail were, there, when they kidnapped him, they still allowed him to put his uh, money into the bank <laughs> as a deposit.
1: Yes, they, they, none of these people were, were panicked. They were very calm, and so was Captain Collins. They, they let him drop off, go into the bank, and he came back into the car, and they drove down to Cove. Um, when they got there... There was no tugboat, which they expected to be at the Deepwater Quay. So there, there was a few hours of, of tension. And then, um, seren- by serendipity, the warrior, which was a tugboat, came and docked at the um, quay. The um, IRA under Sando boarded the ship. They, in the meantime, they kidnapped the captain and locked him um, up in in Cove. They set sail with Captain Collins at the helm. But because of the delay in capturing the warrior, the Upnor had already set sail two hours later for Plymouth. So when they got beyond the harbour mouth at Roche's Point, there was no sign of the Upnor. So it looked then as if the game was up and it would be impossible to find the, the Upnor in this vast expanse of sea. Where they went looking? Yes, Captain, Co- Captain Collins uh, decided to help them, even though he, his sympathy was with Michael Collins in the Free State. He, dis- he decided that the um, up north would sail largely on a southern course and then deviate to the southeast. So if the Warrior tugboat sailed on a south southeasterly course, he estimated they could intercept the armed ship at about 6.30 that evening. And sure enough, he was right.
0: Now, we're not going to give the story away, but the suspicions were aroused by the Admiral, who is the commander of the Navy in Ireland.
1: Yes. um, Admiral Er Ernest Gaunt was a... um, An extraordinary uh, man himself. He was. He was. He was one of the first Australian admirals. Um, He had Served with great distinction in the c- colonies and at Up uh, Jutland in May 1916, um, but he was a little bit past his prime, and he un- he still thought he was largely in the colonies during the time of the war of un- independence. So he underestimated his opponents in the IRA, and this was a fatal error. Um, he he made several errors in uh, sending out the armed ship for instance he didn't put an armed guard on board he didn't equip it with wireless to get help and he didn't um, send out an armed uh, escort with the ship
0: now the book is called the ballycotton job and it's published by mercy press what's your own background tom that made you come to write this book
1: Well, you know, I've been um, researching um, the IRA for for decades. And my first book was actually, um, with the aid of a cryptologist, a decryption of secret IRA documents from the UCD archives from the 1920s. So I've been interested in the nuances of history and the complexity and then the looking at the personality. So I've always enjoyed this research and I've always striven to to be as objective as possible and there's always a a element I suppose of humor and human pathos running uh towards research so I've I've enjoyed this project an awful lot
0: that's a bit of an American accent I detect yes
1: I left Dublin in 89 so I wandered uh throughout the states and I now live in Honolulu um with my wife and and our son and I I am very happy to have an excuse to come back to Ireland, a particular Cork, on a very frequent basis. So I use the, this research is to return home as often as I can.
0: Where do you find the documentation to uh, research something like this? Because I, I'm from Cork, as of many of our
1: listeners, and there's stuff here I never heard. It's um, The the Irish War of Independence and Aftermath is is one of the most documented revolutionary periods ever. So there's masses of documents. For instance, in the National Archives in Kew, and um, has huge um, there's also particularly the Ona O'Malley papers in UCD archives in, in Dublin are fascinating and then we have the Bureau of Military History which has released uh, thousands of witness statements taken in the 1950s and 60s from participants so it's a matter of putting everything together Fergal um, what is difficult is that in researching a story like the up north, is that there is it, it requires really numerous sources because there's only a little bit in each source. Um, so piecing t- it together has been fascinating and it's taken years to do that.
0: And The Ballycotton Job by Tom Mahan has just been published by Mercier Press and it's a really a terrific read. The Oireachtas Committee on Transport and Communications heard some disturbing accounts of the culture and morale within the Irish Coast Guard services this week. The Irish Coast Guard Volunteers' Representative Association was before the committee on Wednesday, following on from appearances by the service management some months ago. The Volunteers' Representative group described a service which was, they said, dysfunctional, overly bureaucratic and rigid, and where members who gave freely of their time to do a dangerous job were never listened to. Chair of the group, John O'Mahony, spoke of the level of morale in the Coast Guard services.
2: Morale in the Coast Guard is—we would consider it to be at an all-time low. Uh, we would say that, you know, many units are probably at half strength, um, if if not lower. And even within those units, the number of turning up for actual callouts and for training is even less than that. And it's uh, one of the reasons is—I uh, mean, when a dispute happens, it causes a lot of. Um, Basically you get you get one, one member of the team may be targeted. Um, whether it's legitimate or not, it then privacy and confidentiality come into any dealings between Coast Guard management and the volunteer and they're not allowed to share the information with other team members. They become distant from the team members. The team becomes distant from each other. And you know, a little probably the team can often split. And because there's no local resolution allowed anymore because we've done that for many years for uh, we have over 100 almost 100 years of service between us and for many years we would have been involved in bringing teams together now there is that is actually not encouraged or even allowed now with the way with 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 the current coast guard management it disputes are taken out of the local team they're taken into um, you know either grievance complaints or they're are people volunteers are being put on a trial? From then on, the volunteer has no right to an external, to any external assistance. Only a volunteer can sit with them as a witness, and the state can throw the full. You have no right to the Workplace Relations Committee. We have no right US. to the Workplace Relations Committee. We have oh. no right to join a union. We can't go to the ombudsman. You're no, volunteers. and when we check it every time, we're talking, because you're volunteers, you're not a worker.
0: That was John O'Mahony of the Volunteers' Representative Association and what he said there has been reflected by volunteers who have separately contacted us here on Seascapes in recent months. Assistant Chair of the group is Bernard Lucas, whose late wife Katrina died during a Coast Guard rescue operation in Kilquay in 2016. Here he describes the situation in Doolan in response to a question from TD Joe Carey.
3: I'm aware of a situation
2: that happened in in the Cliffs of Moher, Uh, a person broke their leg and I understand that the volunteers
4: could not actually help that casualty, is that the case? Yeah, very much so, Uh, happened the day before yesterday, the casualty had uh, a suspected broken hip on the pathway at the Cliffs of Moher and the pathway isn't isn't particularly wide, it might be from me to the next row of tables in front, and there's a, a wire fence. But Coast Guard volunteers aren't allowed to go over that wire, wire fence because of different reasons. And this person was just literally there, roaring in pain with a broken leg. And there was nothing... Three volunteers turned up from doing it, and there was nothing that they could do. So the fire brigade come along, and they just go over the fence, do the right thing, put the person in a stretcher and take them back and get them to the hospital. As quickly as possible, the helicopter in this occasion airlifted the person.
2: And why would that be the case? Why can't volunteers, you know, do what they should be doing? Uh, yeah, and the, rescue that that casualty. Yeah, it,
4: it's to do. There was a report done in the cliffs on parts of the cliffs of Moher, saying that they were dangerous and they were going to fall and, and different you things like this. Did report, um, Mr. Lucas? Sorry, who carried out that report? Um it was on behalf of Clare County Council and it was deemed a part of the Cliffs and we're, we're unsafe and stuff and so there was a plan put in place that if we did have to go out over the Cliffs and Moher that we would park a jeep in the field and there'd be chocks put to the back of the jeep and we would anchor ropes and we would put a harness and we would just go over the fence but this has never been implemented the plans are there, the equipment arrived but it is lost somewhere in wherever these things go and nothing has ever been implemented but the point being is that, that that case that happened just the day before yesterday was very important because if there had been low fog on that day, the helicopter would not have been able to winch uh, from the top of the cliff. Some more, And if the fire brigade had been on a house fire, for instance, this casualty would have been still lying just there, roaring in pain with a broken hip, and three volunteers couldn't go to do anything to relieve her or comfort her or put anything around her for the for hypothermia, for instance. So I don't know what the answer would be. Uh, we, have an, we have an area at the... Since, since the and team have been stood down, we have an area called Isle Sharrock, And it's a very steep slope. And it's... There's a goat path that runs down long. And surfers go down, people go down taking pictures. Now, it's quite steep, and it's, you want to have a good head for heights to be able to do it. But if anything happens to anybody at the bottom of this path, simple thing a sprained ankle, a twisted ankle. There is no mechanism to get that person out of there as it stands at the moment with the dueling team being stood down. We have the ropes and we have the gear and we have the experience. We've done it for lots and lots of times over the years. But at the moment, there is nobody to take that person from that position to the top and to safety.
0: And that was from the Oireachtas Committee on Transport and Communications from last Wednesday. And this is an issue we'll be returning to in the weeks to come. If you want to look back at that hearing, you'll find the link to it on our website, rt.ie/seascapes. The latest series of the Great Lighthouses of Ireland began a four-week run on RT television last Sunday. The first programme featured the iconic Fastnet lighthouse... And David Hare of In Production TV, who made the programmes, told me about the latest series.
3: So episode two, which is coming up on Sunday, uh, we're talking about storms and shipwrecks, how Ireland's uh, seabed is being mapped. We talk about uh, Admiral Francis Beaufort, who was born in Navan, County Meath, and is best known now for the Beaufort Wind Scale. And was responsible for all the charts that anyone that goes to sea will be familiar with. Mm. Um, and then we we talk about Storm Ophelia and um, one particular lighthouse attendant's experiences of being at the old head of Kinsale when Storm Ophelia hit, um, which is very you know very dramatic.
0: What's happened? Um, well, he
3: was staying in the cottages what 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 used to be housekeeper's cottages uh next door to the lighthouse which i think are about 30 meters above above high tide and the storm basically broke into the house smashed the windows came into the downstairs smashed the bedroom windows upstairs and he was there at the time and i think that you know anyone can imagine if waves start coming in through your windows 100 you know 100 feet or so above sea level that's quite a dramatic moment
0: and then your third program the third program, we talk about lights, the the sort of
3: technology of lights, the the Fresnel lens, various inventors who sort of made the actual source of the light stronger. There was a chap with John Richardson Wiggum who, who designed new forms of um, gas burners specifically for Irish lights. And we talk about the mercury baths, the, the big optics were able to to, to rotate on with almost no friction at all we talk about uh Valencia lighthouse sorry the lighthouse on Valencia island
0: and then of course the transatlantic cable the mercury baths as you call them they were pretty extraordinary and they're just being removed now more or less i think they might be all gone by now
3: if they haven't all been removed by now they're certainly in the process of being removed and there are probably only a couple left and the reason I think Irish lights wanted to take the mercury away is, is you know, as you know, it's highly toxic and uh, particularly when it evaporates, if so, you know, if, if the lantern room gets very, very warm, you can get a little bit of evaporation. And I think that's what what they were particularly worried about. So what they're doing is they're replacing the mercury with essentially ball bearings. And so the optics will still rotate, but it will just be on a different system
0: because it, it was an extraordinary invention that most lighthouses operated like this they had a, a vat of mercury and then the light sat in this and just turned around
3: yes yeah, so and we've actually got a shot uh, i think it's in that program of i think it's John Noel Crowley one of the lighthouse keepers we interview and you actually see him turning the optic and the fastnet literally with his hand he could he can move it Um, And it probably weighs, you know, five tons or something. And he can literally move it with his hand because there's so little friction. So this thing is so carefully balanced. It's just, as you say, floating, sitting on a, um, you know, a a, a bath of mercury. And because mercury is liquid at room temperature uh, and is, I think it's 13 and a half times denser than water... So uh, such a heavy object as the optic can literally float on this mercury and can be, can be turned around it. So, I mean, it's a brilliant invention.
0: And also, we've been visiting for the programme some lighthouses around the country. And my understanding is that going back through the times, the lighthouses were rotated by means of a clockwork that they wound up, was it a stone wound up to the top? And as it fell down, it, it caused the rotation.
3: Yes, I mean, it was like a big, almost like a big, a big grandfather clock. Um, so you wound it up and then a, a weight would, would, would drop. And depending on how tall the lighthouse was would determine how, how often you'd have to wind up the mechanism. So in the Bailey lighthouse, it's, it's not a particularly tall lighthouse. And so the drop isn't very big. And I think the keepers there had to wind it up every 45 minutes.
0: Okay, it was part of your daily job to wind, wind up the lighthouse. That was part of
3: the job, absolutely. So when, so when, exactly, so part of the job every 45 minutes was to wind up the mechanism. On a lighthouse such as the Fastnet, where you, you've obviously got a much longer drop, You know, you'd be winding it up every couple of hours.
0: Why do we have such a romantic attachment to lighthouses? It's not just an Irish thing, because you see photographs of lighthouses all over the world, in the US, in France, Portugal, Spain. They're very iconic.
3: Well, we talk about that very much in Programme 4. We interview um, an artist who works in, in West Cork, Geraldine O'Sullivan. We interview a photographer, Peter Cox, um and they both you know photographed and painted respectively you know lots of different lighthouses and it's very interesting talking to them and seeing what you know why they think people are attracted to them um i mean as peter cox said you know they're basically pieces of transport infrastructure uh, which isn't particularly romantic and yet people do seem to love them and artists have always been drawn to them ever since the pool beg um, lighthouse was built in the sort of 1760s there have been marked paintings of it and you know people continue to paint uh, lots of lighthouse keepers obviously painted when they were on duty as well and I think it's because they're in very inaccessible places they're very they're very remote they offer shelter and yet at the same time you wouldn't necessarily want to be in one during a storm so there's a kind of a, a bit of a bit of danger and a bit of coziness, all in the same building, if if such a thing is possible. And I think people just find them mysterious in a way and romantic. Um, the people who worked in them are, you know, may, maybe heroic is too strong a word, but they certainly did a, did an amazing job in very difficult circumstances. So there's a lot going on that people just find attractive. I think.
0: The Great Lighthouses of Ireland, you can catch it on RTE Television at 6.30 next Sunday. If you missed the first episode, you find it on the RTE player. And that's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programme podcast, it's on our website, rte.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact me or the programme, the email is seascapes at rte.ie. If you're anywhere on or near the water over the next week, stay safe.
3: Seascapes is presented and produced by Fergal Keane.